Welcome to the 24 Stories podcast that aims to educate, inspire and help build brands. I'm your host, Stephen Ryan, founder of 24 Stories, and I'll be joined each week by guests from a variety of industries here to tell you how they built their brands. Welcome to episode 20 of the 24 Stories podcast. And this this week, we're going to talk about weddings and the business of weddings. And I'm delighted to be joined by uh, the founder of Wedding Dates, Kira Crossan. Welcome to the podcast, Kira. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for having me. Now, before we get into weddings, weddings wasn't always your thing, I'm, I'm thinking. That, that probably came about later. Mm-hmm. When you were in secondary school, what was the plan? Um, I didn't really have a, a very good plan, I think, at, the, yeah. at, at that time. In secondary school, there was never anything that I was like, knew that I was mm. going to be. Yeah. Except I always, probably from a very young age, even way before secondary school, probably knew that I always wanted to be my own boss. And oh, that was something yeah. that was very strong for me. I just didn't know in what, mm. but I knew I probably wanted to work for myself or run my own business. And what, what inspired that, would you say? Um, my family background is in hospitality. So both my parents grew up in hotels. Yeah. So an entrepreneurship, I suppose those, my grandparents were, they ran their own businesses. They ran hotels. And then when I was a child, my dad started his own business. So I think entrepreneurship was very acceptable yeah, and accepted yeah. in my family. So I kind of always had that in me, even in secondary school, like we had a mini company in transition year. I was the managing director of the mini company. Yeah. We had the school bank. I was the leader of the school bank. You know, it was, I, I naturally kind of went into those um, leadership positions. And I just, yeah, I, I kind of always knew instinctively that I probably would run my own business someday. I just didn't know in you what. Did. Yeah, so when it came to deciding then in the CEO and, you know, picking college places, mm-hmm. like, could you have taken a step out and said, gone straight back and gone straight into hospitality like the family? Or or did you say, no, I want to try something different? I knew I always wanted to go to college. I yeah. think like more for the, you know, the experience of going to college yeah, yeah. rather than the education side of it. I think that was probably driving me a lot when I was 18. But the really funny story about the CAO, actually, I mean, when I was 18, I, I'm, the, I'm the eldest in my family. I'm the only girl. I have three brothers. All I wanted to do was go to Galway to college. I went up to UCG to the open day, fell in love with the campus there and the Galway and just the whole vibe up there. And I just wanted to get out of home. Mm-hmm. And because we lived relatively close to UCC, I was like, well, if I go to UCC, I'm going to live have to live at home. Yeah, and I yeah. really wanted to get out yeah. of home, right? It was a busy, noisy household, three other siblings, um, my mom and dad working, you know, it was full on. So I really wanted to get out of home. So my entire CAO was Galway except the first place on the list. We had um, students from BIS and UCC come into us in school and talk to us about BIS. And one of the big things was if you do BIS and UCC, you get to go to Boston for six months on a work placement. And so obviously that appealed to me. So, But BIS was quite high points at the time. Mm. So I threw it down number one, thinking there's no way I'll get it. And then two down, literally, Galway, 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 Galway. And didn't I bloody get the points? <laughs> of course, I accepted it straight away. I was like, this is fate. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm very much a person that kind of goes with the flow of things. And I, you know... Especially I, was... when one option was Cork and the rest were Galway. Mm-hmm. You're kind of thinking, this is destiny. I'm, exactly. I'm supposed to go here. Like, Did you get to go to Boston? I did. I did. Yeah. That was a good I, experience, I'd say. It was brilliant. It was a fantastic experience. And the one of the really interesting things was at the time a number of different big companies in Boston took BIS students. I happened to go to EMC, which obviously has very strong connections with Cork as well. But in total, out of my class in BIS, there was over 50 of us in Boston. So we all obviously went into our little Mm. friend groups. I lived with three of my best friends, uh, three girls. We rented a house in in Boston and we, we were working in three different companies actually yeah. and we go off to work during the day but come home and you know live together basically cook dinner live together socialise together etc but you could be going down the street to get a litre of milk and next you bump into someone else from your class at home it was it was so weird <laughs> that is bizarre yeah. <laughs> it was so weird but uh, we had an amazing six months and um, it was a really great experience for me you know living out of home you know cooking for yourself, washing for yeah, yourself, all that yeah. stuff. It was a great learning experience. And obviously the placement itself was fantastic as well. But it gave me a lot of confidence, you know, working in a big corporate environment. And one of the things 
that I say is so important about any job or internship or placement or whatever you do. It's as much learning about what you don't want to do than what you do want to do. You know, it's almost like a process of elimination. So one of the big things for me working in a big corporate and I worked in a couple of other corporates after I graduated from college as well. One of the big learnings for me was I definitely don't want to work in the corporate world. And why is that? <laughs> Just, it didn't suit me. It didn't mm. suit my personality. I think the rigidity of it, mm. you know, um, the whole giant open plan offices with the cubicles. I felt very boxed in. I felt like a hamster in a cage and it just yeah. didn't suit my particular personality. Um, I learned loads from the various different corporates I worked in, but they were all quite short term really because I started my business relatively young. And that's actually a great learning experience, mm-hmm. isn't it? Because we'd obviously have a lot of younger listeners listening to this as well in terms of college students and people who have just recently graduated and they might think, this is not for me. So did you job hop a bit then when you came out of college? Like what happened? Like you obviously with BIS, nearly naturally, most of them end up with multinationals, mm-hmm. don't they? Just because they have, the, I suppose they have the great rewards for the students when they come out. Yeah that maybe smaller businesses can't give them. Yeah, exactly. When we were in our final year of college, 99, 95% of my class were all applying for the graduate programmes. You know, um, PwC, Deloitte, you know, the big uh, Citibank, Deutsche Bank, all those big financial institutions, all of these amazing graduate programmes and they're looking for people that that are coming out of degrees like BIS and with brilliant perks, brilliant starting salaries, all of that. And most, all my friends went went that either that route going for the graduate programs and I just I started and with these graduate applications you know it's all a portal it's all online you log in it, in some cases it would take days or weeks to actually complete the application they were very in depth oh. and I remember opening one of them logging in and just looking at it and just again that instinct I was just like something in t- inside me is telling me this isn't for me so I didn't fill out any graduate applications yeah and at the time, they were just launching the masters in BIS. Yeah. So, I ended up getting a scholarship to do the masters in BIS, and I was really just torn over it. Yeah. Um, I really wanted to go traveling, mm. and I remember talking to my dad about it, and you know, I've I've got this scholarship to do a masters, basically straight after. I mean, they they kind of jokingly call it fifth year BIS, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And I could do this scholarship, uh, or, you know, uh, this master's, should I say, in my degree and, and further that. Yeah. Or I could go traveling. And my dad said to me, he said, Kira, whatever decision you make is the right one. Mm. And at the end of it, you're going to have a master's. On one hand, you're going to have a piece of paper, master's. Mm. And on the other, you're going to have a master's in life. Yeah. And I was like, whoa. Yeah. I mean, that was so powerful to that me at the powerful. time. Yeah. Yeah. And I've told my dad this story since. He doesn't even remember saying it to me. That's <laughs> the funny thing. But it was such a really defining moment in my life because it was, you know, my parent, my, you know, my rock, my, somebody who I looked up to, yeah. giving me that permission to follow my own path and to trust my own gut. And, you know, for a lot of, for a lot of families and a lot of people, and I, I, I've seen it with some friends and, uh, you know, other people, education is hugely important, but it can, people can be forced into things or pushed into things that maybe aren't mm. right for them or the, or whatever. And with my parents, you know, they, they wanted us to go to college for sure, but they weren't hung up on it. You yeah. know, they really yeah. wanted myself and my, my three brothers to be happy. And for me, when I was, I was really was being called to travel and then I had this other opportunity and I, I was like... You know, it's almost like the angel devil on your shoulder, like, what should I do? I'm torn in this decision. And my dad was like, just do whatever your heart says. And that was a really great initial learning for me of that trust your gosh, trust your instinct and back yourself really and believe in yourself. And did you travel then? I did. I went travelling for two years and um, travelled around the world, lived in Australia, worked in Australia as well. Um, But it was a whole world, literally one of those round the world, round the world tickets. So I was away for two full years. Uh, and so you did get a master's in life. So I did. Like he said, like, yeah, I absolutely yeah. did. And sometimes I look like I'm. I'm. Te- I tell people those stories from mm. traveling, and it's like, did that? Ha- did that actually happen mm. to me? It really feels like I was a different person because it feels you know it was so long ago, of course. But um, it was really great, you know, training for me. I think in being very independent, yeah, and you know, um, making good decisions. 
and backing your decisions as well. People skills as well, I'd say. Yeah, for sure. Relationship building and stuff, yeah. Exactly. I mean, you know, whenever you land in a new place, you're in a hostel or whatever, you Mm. networking, making friends, new people, making connections and, you know, relationships in a relatively short space of time. You know, there's people that I would have met along the way and either both in travelling and, and working when I when I was in Melbourne and I'm still in touch with some of those people, you know. Yeah, so it's really yeah. amazing that those those relationships that were formed in a, a relatively small part of my life but that actually that actually lasted. And when you came back then after the two years of travelling was it a case I better get stuck into something here and no, you, you know well yeah it was, was there like, a bit of pressure kind of at that point there was big time pressure right yeah. because I was completely out of money yeah. um, all my friends that had gone on to those graduate programmes had come out of the graduate programmes and were in really good jobs yeah. you know they were earning big money yeah. working in big financial institutions in London Dublin and I was there just you know with my crusty old backpack with not a penny to my name yeah, and back living with my like, parents in moments like that do you ever get regret in you know, do you ever kind of say, oh God, like look at the life they're having, they're, they're living the best life. Is there ever a moment like that, of course? I Honestly, I don't think so yeah. because I was so rich in experiences, right? I wasn't yeah. rich in money, yes. but I was rich in experiences yeah. and I had had an amazing two years away, travelling, growing up. Yeah. You know, all of that big desire that I had, you know, when I was 18 to live away from home, which I didn't really get to do because I was in, yeah. lived at home with yeah. my parents for going to UCC. I got that for my six month placement in Boston and then I had it for my two years two travelling. Years. So I really felt that I I grew up a lot. I became a lot more independent and I just learned to, you know, just back myself. And I was out of the bubble of, you know, my family, Cork, friends, college. It's just you, Kira. It's You know, you're on your own two feet. So it just helped me kind of have, you know, back myself and have that self-belief, I think. And so when you when you started settling back here then, what was the, what was the first thing you did? Well, I had to get a job. Yeah. <laughs> I was broke. So I ended up, my first job when I came back from travelling was up in Apple. I'm so from, you ended up back in that multinational, yeah. what you wanted to try to stay away yeah. from. Yeah. yeah, but Apple was a really fun company to work okay. in. Uh, it's really young up there. It's really yeah, buzzy. Yeah, yeah. And um, I worked in recruitment in the in the HR department, um, hiring people to work in the call centre. It was in the lead up to Christmas. Yeah. And they need people from all different languages mm to work the call centre there and I was involved in interviewing and hiring um, over 100 people um, to, to work in Apple for the few, I was only there for a few months but it was yeah. actually quite formative for me. Again, working in a high pressurised environment, I used to literally get the list, you know, once a fortnight and they'd be like, okay, in two weeks time we need 55 people, we need 15 English speakers, uh, nine German speakers, seven French speakers, three Dutch. Oh. I'd be given a shopping list yeah. and I had two weeks to get it. To find those people yeah. and have bums on seats. So it was very fast turnaround, very intense, um, but really fun. And I absolutely loved it. And I loved interviewing people and talking to them and, um, you know, Getting their life achieving story the goals. and stuff like that as well. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. Yeah. And and achieving the goals then of the organisation, you know, they needed these bums on seats. And, you know, it was very rare um, that I wouldn't have my full complement of people. And sometimes it'd be just down to the wire. And of course, they'd came in on the Friday for induction. They'd start working the Monday, but they came in on Friday for induction. And they, there was drug testing as part of it. And I'd be bringing the ones in from the Netherlands. Oh, God. <laughs> and I'd be warning them, like, when you come, there's going to be a drug test. Like, make sure you pass. Because I'd had my exact 55, right? So if yeah. one didn't pass, get I'm your, down yeah. to 54. Yeah. So it was very, you know, it was, it was, there was very funny times. But I lo- I did really enjoy my time up there even though it was relatively short. And did you stay in similar roles for a while then? Yeah, I, I, I stayed in, in HR recruitment and I moved up to Clonmel and I worked for Abbott Vascular up there in their HR department. They were doing a huge, um, they'd um, separated from Boston Scientific and they were doing a big ramp up for their manufacturing. Yeah. So I hired over 400 people for them to work on the line. So um, machine operators on, on, on the line, made, they made stents for the heart. Again, Plonked in Clamel, didn't owe anyone and really found friends, made a life for myself there. And, yeah. and I was in Clamel for, but you know, a decent stint of time, nine months maybe. And then I had the idea then and I quit to my, I, I, yeah, I, I, I remember going to the, the local enterprise board and telling them the idea and they were like, yeah, okay, all good, all good. But please don't tell me you've quit your job to do this. And I'm like, yep, I have. I need the fear. Oh, <laughs> like, I was like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, remember that episode of Friends where it's like, I need the fear. <laughs> Would it also be the case that you said, okay, I gave up a master's before and 
you know, I travelled the world mm-hmm. and I've come back and it was okay. Yeah. So I'm going to give up the job this time and I'm going to try to start a business. Was there a bit of that as well? Because, you, you know, the risk taking? Yeah, I guess. I suppose you kind of associate risk takers with like people who do bungee jumps and mm-hmm. all that, you know, bonkers kind of extreme sports. And that was never me at all. Yeah. So I didn't really think of myself as a risk taker, but actually on reflection, I probably do yeah, love that. Yeah, to give like, up a job. Like and, love that edge, yeah. you know. And um, again, I was young, right? I was 25. So yeah. I was incredibly arrogant as most people in their mid-twenties are. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> with yeah. All, and, I, and I think look, a little bit of arrogance, you know, goes a long way. Yeah. But I was very naive. I was very arrogant. I was like, you know, try to quit my job, move back home with my parents and try to give it a whirl. And if it doesn't work, I'll just get another job. You know, as if you just go down to Super Value yeah. and pick up a new job. Yeah. And then, of course, the recession hit and there was no jobs. Mm. So then that was like, oh, okay, Uh you took a punt on yourself. Now you really need to lean into this and this needs to work because there isn't other jobs out there. Yeah. So like at 25, like how did you come up with an idea for a wedding business? So my family background, as I mentioned, is hospitality. So both grandparents owned hotels back in the day. I always say hospitality is in my blood, you know. Um, and did you work part-time in that? Uh, growing I actually, up as a... well, I worked in a few restaurants and bars, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. growing up, but I had never kind of properly worked in hospitality. Okay. Um, but, you know, it's it was there in, 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 in my family background. Then I had the BIS degree and if you pardon the pun, it was kind of the marriage of the two of them, yeah. right? So um, back in 2008... Hotels.com, booking.com, those aggregators were just launching around yeah, that time. Yeah. And so it kind of started thinking, well, what's the next thing, you know, you'd want to do in a hotel? Yes. Okay, yeah, you've, you yeah. can book a bedroom, grand. Yeah. Okay, the other thing people want to do in hotels is have weddings, get married. Mm. Cool. We'll make that, we'll put that online. So the it, the original concept was like a booking.com for weddings. That'd be the one-stop shop to get everything. Yeah. Your venue your band or whatever, yep. all that stuff. Exactly. So that was kind of the original concept all tied around the date and that's where the name came from, wedding dates. Um, my dad was actually the one who registered the domain name Yeah. and he kind of presented it to me and he's like, right, I registered the domain name now. If anyone can make this work, you can go for it and really encouraged me and really believed in me. Yeah. And, you know, my mum too and, you know, to this day, I couldn't run the business I do if it wasn't from the support of my parents. Yeah. They're incredibly supportive and, you know, remember one year, my myself, my brothers and all our, our gang of friends, we were at Electric Picnic and I was on to mum and dad and I was like, this is just so cool, like you should come up, like it's amazing. So they drove up anyway, came into Electric Picnic. My mum was wearing her wedding dates hoodie. <laughs> inside the electric picnic and I, like one part of me is like oh that's so cringe and then the other part of me was like oh I just love her for being so supportive you yeah, know yeah. Just, it's a small thing but it just really stands yeah, out in my memory buying into the brand like totally. it's brilliant like, yeah, yeah, yeah yeah no they're they're incredibly supportive of everything I do and just my cheerleaders like you know if I'm ever having a bad day even now mm. first person I'll ring is my mum you know they're both brilliant sounding boards for me with the business and you know, really shrewd business people in their own right and just can give me really good good advice, a good, a good steer on things and a lot of perspective as well. You know, my dad would often say to me, here, things are never as bad or as good as they initially seem. Mm. So just, you know, just keep your head and your shoulders, you know, just keep a level head about things because sometimes you could be getting carried away with the good yeah. or getting dragged down by the bad, but it's yeah. just like... Just keep on keeping on, you know, yeah. just keep keep it level, keep it steady and, you know, you won't get swung too yeah. far in either direction, which I think is great advice. And I'm guessing so in those early days, you kind of had to sit down with them as well and say, OK, this is my plan, but how do we get customers, you know? Yeah. And one of the the big things that I did at the beginning and which is still true the business to this day is getting out and talking to the customers and that's you know probably one of my biggest lessons and you know of the the power of that so when I initially started there was no website there was nothing like I was I didn't have a job um I was out in the Rubicon and I was just putting the business plan together you you know trying to how, how do you build a business and I first started by going through the yellow pages at the time literally got the physical yellow pages that people, the younger people on listening to this podcast probably don't even know what they are, Stephen. Yeah. Uh, we'll be showing it's like our a age. book with Google. <laughs> 
So yeah. <laughs> so went to the got the yellow pages and went to H and went to hotels. Mm. And my the company that my dad did some work for, they were a na- national company, so they had more than just the O two one phone book that I had at home. They had all the other ones, so I brought borrowed them, brought them home, and literally. The first database, what what wedding dates is built on is an Excel spreadsheet that I manually typed in every single hotel name, address and phone number into an Excel spreadsheet. That's what I spent kind of the first month doing. You think now, what a ridiculous waste of time. Like nowadays you could just buy that, right? Yeah, yeah. And in one one part of me is like, you know, the efficiency part of me is like, yeah, total waste of time manually Mm. doing that. But actually, it was such a great grounding for me. There's, there's not a hotel in the country that I don't know the name of, I haven't heard of, that I wouldn't be able to place it on a map. And and understanding just the whole kind of ecosystem of hotels in yeah. Ireland, the actual art of manually doing that. And did while you get some contact people, names as well then for people as well in each of those hotels? Or? Not from the yellow pages, right? It was just basic. Yeah. You know, so that, that came later then. So then, you know, started contacting them and my initial thing was going to people and ask, telling them that I was had a business idea and I mm. was just doing market research and okay. could I meet them? And it's just amazing. And I'm sure other people that have been on your podcast have said the same thing. When you tell people what you're doing, it's amazing how people want to help you. Yeah. Like I've received so much help over the years. And some of those people that I interviewed for market research before wedding dates, before the website was live, before mm. there was a line of code written, some of those people are still my customers today, which is just phenomenal. That's amazing. Yeah. Carmel yeah. Lonergan in Trigon Hotels up the airport uh, international, yeah, or the yeah. Cork International was one of the first people to sit down with me. And I, you know, kind of explained to me how weddings work in hotels and, you know, yeah. gave me some of the, that, you know, hotel language and that jargon, you know, that you need to know if you're operating in that space. And so I went out and did kind of 30 interviews. Cork, Kerry, and then Mayo and Sligo, that's where my family's from. Yeah. Um, so I'd have a few connections up there. My yeah, my granny, yeah. who owned a hotel, um, now it was long gone out of the family at that point, but, you know, um, she would have made some connections for me with people and set up yeah, a few initial yeah, meetings yeah. for me. I did 60 and it took me, it was over the course of a few months, right, yeah. starting up. That's what I used as the basis of my pitching, you know, when I was going to the yeah. likes of the Rubicon and stuff like that you know, was I've done this market research and this is a decent cohort. And then the website was getting built over the summer and then we were due to launch in September. It was slightly delayed. We launched one month late in October, which when I look back now, a month delay is nothing, right? When you're getting websites built. But at the time, oh my God, the tears that were shed was cataclysmic, right? But we went live with 30 venues and those 30 were basically... 50% 50% of the ones that I'd interviewed because I interviewed them then I went back and said okay now the website's being built this is I showed them some screenshots some mock-ups yeah. don't you want to sign up so I was selling pre-go live I was selling on nothing And um, Were you selling them a position on your website mm-hmm. that you would then go find the audience for them was exactly. that kind of the goal basically That was exactly it so it was like you know pay me to put you on, on the website and mm. then I'll find the audience but I was selling pre-website go live off the back of just PowerPoint PowerPoint slides and I also never gave away any free listings because, you know, I didn't have any investment, any backers, nothing like that. So it was kind of like they had to pay because that was how I was going to get income. So there was no free listings. Um, You know, it was very much they had to pay and it was obviously very inexpensive but still... Um, you know, I remember sitting next to Ray Kelleher. He was in the Clarion at the time, you know, and, and kind of, yeah, I'll give this a shot, you know. Web listings were still kind of in their infancy yeah. at the time. And their websites wouldn't have been that sophisticated if mm-hmm. I think back to 2008 either. Very basic. A lot of hotel websites back then were just kind of brochure sites. Yeah, you wouldn't have had the online booking engines that mm-hmm. they all have nowadays. Yeah, exactly. Now, obviously, they start that, that was when all that started taking mm-hmm. off. So they started becoming way, way more internet savvy and stuff. So that yeah. was, I suppose, that really helped me. I think the timing really helped mm-hmm. me because they were very open to that. They were like, yes, the internet, we need to be online. This yeah. is where it's going. Here's a spunky young girl doing all this. We kind of like the cut of her jib. Let's give her a shot and it's yeah, not that expensive. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. and but I suppose, you know, when you're looking at, you know, your competitive landscape, I mean, for me, competitors were, you know, the newspaper, the radio, yeah. other places that 
the hotels could spend their money on advertising. I was taking some of that budget. There was a couple of wedding forums and stuff like mm-hmm. that. I actually got married in 2008, so that's how I remember. Oh, yeah. Um, and like there would have been kind of those type of things, yeah. wasn't there? Yeah. And they were quite big. And then you had these events, mm-hmm. which still happen. They do, they're, yeah. They're, the big wedding showcases. They, and wedding so they were the kind of the, the kind of mainstays of where people found out info, wasn't exactly. it? Exactly. Forums back then were huge. Yeah. Yeah. Huge. And I was really adamant, I'm not going to have a forum. Okay. Because I, that's yeah. the way I'm going to differentiate myself. Yeah. Oh, I'm not going to have a forum because, um, you know, somebody once told me a forum with no users, no interaction, it's like a giant empty room and that's nobody right. wants to be the first person to talk. So in order to build up a forum from scratch, you know, you have to do a lot of seeding of it, a lot of community building, all of this. And I just simply didn't have the resources and the time to do that because I was out selling. I was trying to sign up these hotels. So there was a revenue model there from day one and I was laser focused on sales from day one because I didn't have the runway to go seeding a forum for months and months and months and months and months. Mm. You know, I started the business in February. The website went live in October. I made my first sale in July of that year. So I was making money in the first year. And which how, is kind of yeah, unusual. How did you survive from February to July? Like, was there any funding from local enterprise office to kind of get you up and running? Or Yeah, well, I mean, I was living at home, so I didn't have to pay any yeah. rent and yeah. food and everything. That was all covered. I was very lucky then to get on to the Genesis programme in the Rubicon, which it's now the New Frontiers. Yes. It evolved, yeah. but back then it was called the Genesis programme. So I had free office space for a year Brilliant. and also... Um, I think it was called the Cord Grant, you know, where they pay a portion of your salary. Yeah, yeah. For yeah. a year. So I had that. And then I had a small bank loan. Um, so a 25k loan. Yeah. Of course, they wouldn't just give me a business loan. I had to have my my father had to go guarantor on the yeah, loan. Yeah. And we had to sign personal guarantees and all of that because obviously the banking sector was not in a good place mm. at that time in 2008. But that helped sustain me. But I, it was really funny. My my dad was very insistent that I did the foundations right from the beginning. So my my aunt at the time worked in um, a software company that did pay, payroll software. Yeah. A thesaurus software. A lot of people know it. A lot of people would use it. It's called BrightPay now. So straight away, I bought payroll software okay. <laughs> and did payroll every month. For, for myself. Yeah. But like I used a software platform that calculated all the tax, everything correctly. And I paid myself a salary like a PAYE employee. Mm. And that was that kind of rigour has been in the business since day one. And that has that foundation has really, really stood to me. So I was kind of really set up in quite a good structure and quite formally from mm. the very, very beginning. And, mm. um, you know, there was the wedding dates, bank account. And there was the Kira Crossan bank account and they were never, they never touched. They were in different banks. That separation of church and state, for yeah. want of a better word, was really important to me at the beginning because I was, I suppose I was afraid of doing anything wrong. Mm. You know, it's a big responsibility yeah. to um, to be a director of a company and I take that responsibility very seriously. So, you know, that was a really great foundation and my dad really helped instill that into me and kind of teach me, I suppose, the, the fundamentals of business because sure, I, didn't have a clue. I was winging you were still it. Still like. young, like twenty five. Yeah. I was winging it. Yeah. I was making it up as I go along. But the the fundamentals were there, and then that was very much built on from the likes of the the Genesis program and the Rubicon, um, and that really gave me my the ability for me to go for that first year. And then did I see that you went on TV mm-hmm. to secure more funding? Well, my Dragon's Den experience. So. Um, I mean, the whole thing of the Dragon's Den is the PR is just phenomenal. Yeah. And back then, the Dragon's Den had just launched on Irish TV. Yeah, it was so a huge was, TV it show. It was massive yeah. at the time. And again, this is for the younger listeners, imagine, pre-Netflix, pre-streaming, right? Yeah. We watched what was on telly for yeah. the most part. And um, Dragon's Den was huge at the time. So there was one season on and then I was on season two. I went for it and I applied to the producers, etc., and pitch the business for for funding. And um, now, I didn't get the funding, but my goal going into it wasn't funding. My goal was to get the PR. Um, mm. it did play out a little bit differently than what I expected. I in my mind, right, the way I had it all structured in my own mind, two of the dragons would 
offer to back me and then I would you know do the walk to the back of the room and have a think and yeah. then I would politely decline their offer and I'd be you know I would imagine the headline in the Irish Examiner you know the girl the cork girl turned down the dragons yeah <laughs> deluded um, that didn't happen but um, they I didn't get the investment I didn't I didn't get the any offers but it was so positive for me. They, the Dragons were actually very, very positive to me, even though they didn't invest. They were very, very positive in their feedback. You know, there was none of the nastiness. No, nobody slated me. It was, it was all very, yeah, very positive. Yeah. And I mean, to this day, you can still see the traffic spike on the website from way back then in 2010 yeah. or whatever it was. It was phenomenal. Like the exposure that it gave me and the business was you could never pay for that. You know, it was I, a PR I, strategy on your behalf. Totally. Uh, I often see people there and they go on with uh, Francis Brennan and stuff like that as well. And I said, I know what they're at. Yeah. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah. Well, like they, pe- they're not that silly. They know what their business uh, is. Is but let's let's get Francis and John in to fix our hotel or whatever it is. Exactly. You know? And like you know, you've been around long enough. You've seen enough of marketing. You you can kind of know. You know, mm, this is for TV or whatever. Yeah. Um, you know, I really strategically planned that yeah. Dragon's Den and, you know, I went for media training with the communications clinic in Dublin to actually practice and get myself ready. And they gave me proper media training down to what to wear, what jewellery, yeah. you know, don't have any jangly jewellery, this mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, and I did a fake Dragon's Den with Anton Savage and he was the Dragon's and you know, he was acting the part of the Dragon's or whatever. Yeah, and I yeah. did it, they did it on camera, they filmed me and he laid into me to the point where I was like we finished and I was just like oh my god like I wasn't crying but like I wasn't far off it and then the camera stopped and he was like oh my god that was amazing well done and I was like it was like Jekyll and Hyde I was like oh my god what (laughs) he was like I laid into you there and you handled it so well and I was like oh my god I thought you were really thought it was such a bad idea and he was like no like that's that's what I'm I'm here to put you under pressure and it was they gave me the the DVD at the time to watch myself back and I could see you know all of the things that I wouldn't do on the TV and it helped me so much so by the time I got to the TV I was really really well prepared and thankfully I mean you're in the Dragon's Den for I was in there for over an hour um, you know the lights are on you the camera's on you It's and they're asking you questions the whole Is time how long those things mm-hmm. last for because you, they're on the TV for about five minutes yes yeah. no it's, it's a full on pitch because you know, they do invest in some businesses. They didn't invest in mine, but they do invest in yeah, some businesses yeah. and it is their, their money, right? Yeah. So it, it is a real live pitch. Yeah. You know, yeah. It, it is for real money. So I was in there for over an hour. My poor father was downstairs and pacing the floor. There's no live stream to downstairs. He didn't know what was going on. He yeah, was, oh yeah. my God, frantic. I came down anyway. I was buzzing and um, I, I definitely and did any of them it. follow up with you afterwards then? Yeah, I mean... Uh, there was a guy on at Nile for black from Black Tie. Obviously, they're gone now. But yeah. you know, there was uh, I met him afterwards, you know, looking exploring. Could we do kind of a collaboration? Because he was in you know suit in hire industry as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Nothing ever came of it. But do you know, it was um, I, Gavin Duffy followed. You know, kind of. I used to meet him at different events. You know, yeah, he, he and he'd remember you from. He it remembered then. me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which and he he was a lovely supporter actually. Yeah. Um. So yeah, you know, it was it was definitely. A really good experience, great training, you know, for me with TV and with media. So, so I'm guessing the business kind of evolved then over the years, did it? So, what was originally kind of a, I wouldn't say a directory mm-hmm. kind of, but you kind of got into SaaS kind of platform. Am I exactly. right in saying that? Exactly, and it's totally evolved over the years from that fairly straightforward directory to a SaaS business, and it, that has been. A slow evolution, I would say. I mean, yeah. I've been in, we just celebrated 15 years in business. Yeah, and uh, Thank you. Um, and I would say, I really do believe so like kind of slow and steady wins the race. And yeah. consistency for me is one of the big things that I would think it's kind of a, a pillar for me, really. It's something I pr- mm. pride myself on. But the business naturally evolved from listening to our customers and and you know, I suppose when we looked at the original idea, you know, matching couples with the hotels and the suppliers, and then very quickly, it's like, OK, well, the hotels have money. The suppliers don't have a lot of money. And the mm. amount of chasing and the amount of work to go to get a photographer on board versus yeah. getting a hotel on board, like straight away, it's like, OK. Two so, different level businesses all very together. Very different. Yeah. So this is completely 
self-funded business, you know, all the revenue goes back into the company. We don't have outside investors. So I really had to be, again, that runway, right? You're always looking, what's my runway? What's my runway? You know, I had to be very critical about where I invested my time and my energy. And, you know, the amount of like, you know, taxi drivers I've met over the years. Do you know what you should do now, girl? And they're like, oh, here we go, you know. (laughs) And, um, you know, you really start being a lot more strategic, I suppose, as, as time goes on. And, you know, for us, we got more and more and deeper and deeper, deeper into hotels and then beyond hotels, venues, right? And, and you know, in terms of where couples can get married, where they have their reception. We expanded to the UK after a couple of years as well. Mm. And a lot of getting out there, meeting the customers, talking to them and listening to them. Through that listening to our customers over the years, we really started to see a gap that, yeah, we can be this advertising platform for them. And there's loads of other advertising platforms as well, more and more popping up all the time. Um, But actually, where is the return on investment? You know, what is this delivering, not just in terms of eyeballs, clicks, inquiries, but what's this delivering in terms of bookings? So I started trying to really demonstrate value to our clients and show them, well, you got, you know, 80 inquiries and you got 10 wedding bookings and it's worth, you know, 200 grand to your hotel or whatever. Breaking that down and showing that to them. And then, you know, when you're talking to them more and more, you start seeing these gaps and that became really apparent, particularly during the pandemic. And, you know, when so many hotels closed, staff were let go, staff were put on furlough, it's a massive challenge now, particularly for our UK clients. Um, you know, post-Brexit, it's been very difficult for a lot of hotels and venues to actually get staff. Yeah, yeah. Um, because a lot of those Europeans have left the UK. Um, and there's people that are working in hotels, as I say, particularly in the UK now, that are doing reception, cooking breakfast, dealing with weddings. They're wearing multiple hats. And it's a really tough time in mm-hmm. the industry. And our software that we've developed now, which we've spun out of the main the core wedding dates business and it's called WedPro but the whole concept is to be that uh, one general manager called it uh, it's like having a PA for his wedding coordinator so I was like yoink I'll take that that's the perfect little yeah. byline for me yeah. um, but it's it's really to support them in their sales pipeline it's a, a CRM for weddings for want of a better word and um, really streamlining that so that's quite exciting that we have that spin-off business that has come quite organically from the, the the core, the original brand of wedding dates. And this has really evolved over time from A, listening to our clients and hearing about their pain, but also their demands, right? They ask us, I love this, but can it do this? Can it do this? It would be way better if you had this report. Yeah. So they're constantly giving us feedback, giving us ideas. And something I'm really proud of is all our software is built in-house so we can be very agile and a client can ask us for something on a Friday and it could be live by the Monday. And I mean, that's not always the case, obviously. But, yeah, yeah. you know, we can be very, very responsive and they love that. They absolutely love that because they have, they developed then a really close bond with us, really deep relationship. And, you know, one of my clients, we were asking him about the, the software and, say, and everything and he said, you'd have to fight me to take it away. Like it's a core part of his day-to-day job the way that we couldn't imagine our lives without Gmail or, you know, Mm. Slack or whatever. This software is fundamental to how he does his job. Um, And particularly through the last few years where it was such a difficult time for hospitality and weddings um, not happening, but the hospitality industry even more broadly, there's a cohort of our clients that stuck with us and kept paying us through that whole period. So that really just showed me my God, we've got a sustainable business here. My God, we've got something that is special that people would miss if you took it away. And that means so much to me that we're actually making an impact on those people's day-to-day lives, their stress levels, etc. And is it bespoke for each client? So, like, like, like if someone logs on to it, what is it, the the details of the couple that are getting Mm -hmm. married... Um, what things they require or like how does it operate yeah exactly so um, it's it's there is elements of it that are bespoke for every um, yeah. every venue we work with so we have um, an element that plugs into their website that allows people to check availability make inquiries okay. or um, book an appointment to come for a tour of the venue yeah. so all of that will always be customised to their look and feel and brand um, and then of course they can 
customise all of the the emails in the back end that go out to the couples. You know, we have these triggered emails at different touch points in the inquiry journey. All of that can be customised. But ultimately the framework is is the same for, for our clients. So, you know, we're able to do this at scale, which is really yeah. the brilliant thing, you know. And was that a big thing? So going to the UK, like in terms of obviously much bigger market. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Irish market was probably going to limit you in the, in the long run, was it? Big time, yeah. I mean, after a couple of years, I had already ex- exhausted the Irish market. I'd been around to all the hotels. It was me driving around in my Honda Civic. Like, it didn't yeah. take me that long. Yeah. Um, I'm I always uh, kind of proud to say I've, I've been in all 32 counties in Ireland. There's not a patch of this island that I haven't yeah. seen along my travels. Um, and I love that and I love getting out mm. and about. And But yeah, it, it was it very quickly started feeling that if these people say no, you you can you have to wait a certain amount of time before you knock on their door again, right? Mm. So it it very quickly started exhaust. You know, I I kind of exhausted the list, and I knew that there was always going to be a bigger opportunity. So I said, right, we'll just make the leap and go over to the UK. And like, what was that leap like? Like when you went across to the UK, because that's a market you're you're not familiar with. Mm-hmm. That was like going back to the start, I'd say. Yeah, it? yeah, it was. It, they wouldn't uh, have seen dragons then, they'd see nothing. You yeah. Know, you know, like you just didn't exist as far as they're concerned. Didn't exist. And I remember being in one pitch. I, I, I did this um, pitch to a, a big group of um, chairmen in the hospitality industry. Mm. And, you know, I, I gave a case study, I gave an example of these are the results for a, you know, four star hotel in Dublin or whatever. And this is the results that they've achieved. And one of them just sat there and he said, respectfully, we don't care what's happening in Dublin. You need to give us examples. What's happening in London? What's happening in the Cotswolds? What's happening in Scotland? Mm. And I was like... Yeah, you had none. Yeah, I mean, you know, it was that cart before the horse thing, yeah, right? I was like, yeah. well, I need you guys to like get behind me here and open some doors to me. So it was that, you know, I will get there, but I'm not there now. I can only give you Irish examples because we only exist in Ireland. Um, so it was very much starting from scratch. And, you know, again, talking about people who you know, people are willing to help. So going into the UK, I didn't know anyone over mm. there. I had no network there. Didn't know anything about weddings. Didn't know any anybody in hospitality. So what I did is I reached out to some of my Irish clients, people I knew very well, people who I got on with. And I said to them, I want to expand the business into the UK. Do you know anybody over there that you could introduce me to? And a lot of people in Cork would know Aaron Mansworth, you yeah, know, from the Trigon yeah. group. Aaron was like, yeah, a buddy of mine that I went to Shannon with, uh, the Shannon Hospitality College, uh, James Clark. He's a general manager of a hotel, Park Lane in London. Hook you up with him. So I went over to London to meet James anyway. You should have seen me, Stephen. Like I was on the tube now, my my little dress, my little business dress, right? My yeah. high heels from Mark Spencer's. My laptop was in my laptop yeah. bag and I was on the tube going down to Park Lane. I had the biggest smile on my face. I was like, good morning, good morning. Like, saying hello to people on the yeah, tube like hello yeah. it's not done <laughs> not but I was so yeah. naive I yeah. hadn't been to London in years mm. and I was just so naive and I was just so excited I was like I'm expanding my business to UK I had one meeting like um, but I went over and I met with James and he gave me an hour of his time sitting in that lobby that beautiful five star hotel on Park Lane oh. I remember walking to the meeting you walk past like the Lamborghini shop like yeah, you know, something uh, that you wouldn't see in Cork anyway. <laughs> exactly. And into the hotel, he gave me an hour of his time and he really broke down and explained how weddings work in the UK. And, you know, one of the big differences would be around um, Asian weddings in the UK. It's mm. a massive market there. And a lot of Asian weddings that happen over there, they they have the wedding in the hotel, but it's dry hire. So they have a separate kitchen and they might have multiple kitchens in the hotel and the kitchen be connected to the function room and you can literally hire it, but bring in outside caterers. Now, again, that's yeah, kind of a phenomenon that we yeah. wouldn't think about yeah. hotels in Ireland. You, you're going to a hotel, they, they've got chefs, you like. Yeah, yeah. Whereas in, in, in the UK, you can, you can hire, dry hire, bring in your own caterers. Again, they're very speciality Asian caterers, yeah. you know, to the hotel and have the wedding that way. So that was like mind blowing to me because we, you know, we don't have that. And, you know, just the different nuances, I suppose, yeah. about weddings over there. And, you know, James is an amazing contact to me, opened a lot of doors for me. I still, I see him regularly. I saw him in January and um, gradually I built my network up in the UK. And now, honestly, I'd say I'm nearly better connected in the UK hospitality industry than I am over here it's yeah. amazing and um, people were very welcoming to me and of course the Irish accent goes such a long way yeah. you know yeah. um, 
yeah. lot of businesses that go both to the US and the UK will tell you the same thing. The accent opens a lot of doors and, you know, have been very welcomed over there and, you know, have very successful business over there now as a result. And any problems around Brexit or anything like that? Mm-hmm. That was huge. When that happened, I'll never forget the day that nobody believed that was actually going to go ahead. Yeah, none of us did, yeah. <laughs> I woke up that morning and was like, oh my God, this is going to have serious ramifications for my business. So, I mean, one of the huge ones is the currency, right? You know, obviously when the pound went yeah. went went through the floor, that had a huge impact on on my revenue because... You know, we were, our UK customers were paying us in sterling. Mm. Um, we have a sterling bank account, and they're paying us in sterling. And then, you know, we transfer it over yeah. to euros. But um, so of course the the currency was a huge straight away blow, and then nobody really knew how it was going to impact my yeah. business. And there was all Brexit advice clinics, Enterprise <laughs> Ireland. You know, Bre- get your business yeah. Brexit ready. You're going to all these consultants. None of them had a blue clue. No. Sure, the politicians hadn't even worked out what Brexit no. was going to look like. So that two-year period, or even longer, yeah. post-Brexit, the, the announced the vote, it was a limbo. And it was just very funny because they, these consultants were coming in and they literally couldn't tell me anything. So obviously the currency was an obvious one, which, you know, we, we, were, we were always going to be subject to currency fluctuations. But it, that just, you know, when yeah, Brexit was, yeah. was voted in, obviously it affected the pound very badly. And... But, you know, movement of goods and people, is that going to affect us? No, we still have the common travel area. Okay, should be grand. Um, VAT, another big one. We don't charge VAT in the UK. Yeah. Do we need to start charging VAT? Don't know. Nobody knew. Do we need to set up a UK company? Don't know. Nobody knew. And like, you literally, the, nobody can give you a solid answer. I mean, you go on to the UK Gov website, you can't get an answer. It's such a grey area. Yeah. So all I did was well, I'll just keep going, you know, don't stop. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Yeah. Keep going until somebody taps you on the shoulder and tell you stop, you know. And obviously the big impact of Brexit for me is the the way it's impacted the UK economy. And yes. any anything that's going on in the UK economy is going to impact my business. So the fact of the hospitality industry being impacted by Brexit because they couldn't get the staff, that means hospitality mm. is impacted. That means the hotels have less business coming through the door. They have less money to spend on things like my services. So that has a huge impact. Obviously, the pandemic affected my business both in Ireland and the UK, but I also have UK staff. So there was other ramifications for me around that because the scheme in the UK was different to the scheme here. So they had furlough. So my I only had one staff member at the time. I have three now, but over there. But I had to put her on furlough, which meant she wasn't able to work. Mm. So there was good in that for her because she had a small kid so she was like well kind of almost like a bonus maternity leave but also it, she felt a little bit isolated you know from yeah, so she, yeah. it was actually brilliant because she's she's worked for me for six years and she's very very invested in the company and she used to come on the calls the, the, the Zoom calls that we had as a team even though she wasn't working she still stayed involved and she kept in touch which was really lovely and then you know once furlough was over she came back to work and all good but you know it was just quite interesting whereas in Ireland we had the government subsidy the wage subsidy scheme and but people the people were on. allowed yeah. to work so I just think it was a much better scheme from for a business point of view because you can keep going but also morale you know people staying yeah. motivated and yeah. involved with the company now I was very lucky um, you know that it didn't impact my, my employee over in the UK just because she's naturally a motivated person yeah. but I know a lot of businesses where people just tuned out when they were on furlough they got other jobs and they, they didn't want to do team Zooms with their original company because they were being paid for their furlough and they were getting other jobs and you you've he- I've heard all sorts so yeah the UK is in recession now so that's definitely impacting my business at the moment uh, sales are tough over there for sure Less weddings? I mean, weddings are have been on a decline since the seventies. <laughs> yeah. They have very, very gradual, right? This yeah. is this is not a falling off a cliff bar, mm. you know, um, line graph. This is a slow, slow, slow gradual. Both in decline. the UK and here in in Ireland, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, less over here, yeah. Um, but in the UK, it's been we had a, a very population boom as well, so that probably it balanced out, balanced it out, yeah, exactly. So, um, 
it's it's very gradual, right? But um, you know, I suppose that's just more of a, 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 a when you zoom right out, that's more of a macro yeah, thing, right? Yeah. More of a societal thing. Um, but you know, there are more second time round weddings, of course. Yeah. You know, um, marriage equality, obviously more more yeah. gay weddings, etc. So yeah. you know, there's other. Um, things where it's growing where it's growing in kind of niche markets and exactly. different areas exactly yeah, yeah. and then the other thing is the profile of people getting married mm. is getting older all the time again that is, has been a long standing trend and it's because people are you know more they're more educated they're getting jobs they're getting careers they're, yeah. they're getting married later in life now like my parents got married when they were 23, 24 yeah. you know, if you heard of a 23 year old getting married now you'd fall off your chair you yeah. know it's unheard of yeah. people are getting married into their 30s and it's getting slightly older every year and of course the pandemic when everything shut down yeah. for two years people were naturally two years older getting married yes. even though they might have planned on getting married at say 33. Even dating end. and all that stuff so that, that would have put a delay to it exactly. as well. Exactly. So there's yeah. like a knock-on impact yeah. of all yeah. of that. And uh, you know that the whole wedding business it's evolved as well because you mentioned a while ago like it's not just about hotels anymore mm-hmm. so it's it's like venues have become for big events but also for, for small like, like little houses and mm-hmm. like heritage houses yeah. and Sports halls, or there's probably a lot of different people doing weddings now, isn't it? It's it's totally changing. The landscape is totally changing. I mean, uh, sports stadiums. You can get married in Wembley Stadium, believe it or not. Um, you can get married in Parky Grieve. Uh, you can get married in Dublin Zoo, Edinburgh Zoo, all sorts of quirky places. Yeah, and obviously, yeah. they they're not doing high volume weddings, right? But um, I think now because people are that bit older getting married, because in most cases they're paying for it for themselves. Mm people are you know feel that they want to have more of their own personality their own stamp on the wedding they don't if mom and dad aren't paying for the wedding they don't have to do what mom and dad tells them right in terms yeah. of the guest list and stuff yeah. like that so again that's had an impact on guest lists because people are having less guests at their wedding because mm. they want to be able to enjoy their day get around to everybody you know it's their money so they want their friends they're yeah, not yeah. asking like Auntie Mary twice removed or whatever that they yeah. haven't met and Five years, yeah. you know, so all of that is is changing. Um, weddings and you know, I suppose weddings and I suppose any social events, but they they're always evolving. They're very, you know, trends will will come and go, and 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 they'll evolve. But people will always get married. It is that kind of recession slash pandemic yeah. proof business, yeah. and I think that you know has you know kept me in good stead. Of you know, my business is going fifteen years because it. You know, th- this will always happen. These life events will always continue to happen. Um, you know, pe- people have joked to me over the years. You know, about other versions of wedding dates, funeral dates, or you know, yeah, yeah, you have a thought of doing something like that, divorce dates or whatever. You know, but like I, even though it's very funny, I'm the worst advertisement for my own brand because I've never been married myself. <laughs> but I, I love the industry. It's a fun industry. Hospitality. Mm. The people who work in it are. They're great people, are, and and I'm always drawn to people that have energy and passion, and you do find a lot of that in hospitality, um, and weddings themselves are, you know, they're they're lovely, heartwarming celebrations of life and of together, love. Exactly, yeah. they bring people together, and um, you know, for 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 a business to be in, you know, it's a very positive mm-hmm. business to be in, and you know. It's easy to brand and market as well, right? So I've done yeah. some really bonkers stuff over the years in, in marketing my business and getting, you know, guerrilla marketing, different PR things, uh, wearing my mother's wedding dress, all sorts of crazy things because it's it's easy for people to grasp weddings, you know? And uh, so it's been, it's been helpful for me to have that niche because it's allowed me to do fun things with my marketing and, and be very playful with it. Not be so serious like, we're a software company. Well, yeah, we are, but like we're in the wedding space so I kind of bring a lot of sense of humour to that as well. So would you be always thinking every year I need to come up with something kind of mad left to centre to get myself more PR? Because PR seems to be a big thing that you focus in on. Um. I mean, particularly in the early years, for sure, because we had absolutely no budget, right? So we couldn't spend any, any money at all. So you, you know, I'd be a big kind of believer of the lean startup, you know, do what you can with what you have. And back when I was starting, you know, I was in my early 20s, no money. So it was like, okay, well, we've got me and my friends and like, what can we, what can we do that's going to get us in the paper? What's going to be a bit interesting? Um, 
my mom used to work in PR years ago and like she always used to say to me actually you know when I was kind of agonising in secondary school about what I what I would do she was encouraging me to go into marketing or PR and I again being the rebellious one no way that's not for me yeah. and you know tech was really booming back then in the 2000s yeah. so when I was applying for college so I was like no I'm going to go into cool tech um, but looking back now it's hilarious because of course your mother's always right Yeah and your <laughs> most of your time is probably spent on marketing yeah, and PR no? exactly, yeah, yeah. exactly it's hilarious so you know some of the things that we've done over the years I mean we ran the Cork Women's Mini Marathon all in wedding dresses yeah. uh, me and just again a gang of my friends my poor friends what I've you know kind of dragged them into some kind of bonkers situations but they've always been so supportive and I suppose when you are in your 20s you know you just you kind of just I don't know for me anyway I just didn't really care what anybody yeah. thought I was yeah. like sure we'll go for it like it'll be a laugh yeah, yeah. the worst thing that's going to happen is we're going to have great crack yeah. and if we don't get in the paper um, one of the biggest um, I suppose PR you know Exercise, it wasn't an exercise, stunts, stunts I suppose, stunts, yeah. that's the word that we did was um, the wife carrying championships. So wife that carrying. was, yeah. So it's a real thing uh, in Finland. They do it every year. So it's a 250 meter obstacle course. There's two uh, hurdles and then there's a water obstacle, and the male has to carry the female around this course. Okay. Um, so I heard about this. They, they did it uh, down in Sneem in Kerry as part of the kind of their summer festival. And I holiday down that neck of the woods. So I heard about it and I was like, oh my God, wife carrying. This is, this is a bit of me now. This is golden. So got my mom's wedding dress and put it on. Got a friend of mine to carry me and we did it. And again, loads of PR got in the paper. What a laugh, right? Brilliant. <laughs> got in the Kerry's eye. All yeah, that, right? Yeah. Great. But then we heard that obviously, the, so the winner of the, the one in Sneem got to go and, rep, you know, go to Ireland uh, or go to Finland, should I say, to represent Ireland. Yeah. Obviously, we didn't win, right? We were just having yeah. a laugh. Yeah. But obviously, I then started researching the one in Finland and discovered that, yeah, you could you could go and you could enter. You could just pay a fee and enter. So again, wrote my friend into it, got cheap Ryanair flights, got a tux for him. My, again, the, my mom's wedding dress, the most worn wedding dress in the country. Over to Finland, we went to represent Ireland, Maria. And... um we entered it again. It was just 100% laugh from the minute we touched down in Finland. Like the Finnish people are so warm, so friendly. They're mental as well. Yeah. I mean, it's on in July in northern Finland. So it's 23 hours of daylight. Oh. Um, so they just party all night. Like they're yeah. in darkness for half the year. So when it's bright, they, they take just... take advantage of it then. They really do. So it's this massive festival in this tiny little town, kind of similar to Sneem or something. Yeah. Um, and... We rep, you know, represented Ireland and did it, and we obviously came dead last. I mean, <laughs> we were drinking shots of rum on the start line, like, but we won the prize for most entertaining couple, and again, the PR, the papers just lapped it up. I mean, we were even on like CNN sports coverage, like you know, the bonkers, you know, sports of the world. We were on up on bloody CNN, so. It was just so funny, so quirky when we got so much good PR out of it. And then the following year, I was like, well, you know, we have to go back to defend our title, you know. <laughs> so that year was the year of the ash cloud when there was no flights oh, right, in Northern yeah. Europe. Yeah. Remember that? So I came up with this idea to drive to Finland. If we can't fly, we'll drive um, in a camper van and we'll go from Cork to Finland. Seven countries in seven days and we'll film it so people at home can watch the journey. And put it up online somewhere. Yeah. Two of my friends came with me. So the guy who was carrying me, my friend James, um, he came obviously to carry me. My brother came because he worked for me and he was doing the editing. And then our other friend, Rory, just was like, this sounds class, I want to come. So we're like, okay, you can come, the space for for you. But like, we've got to tie it into the storyline. <laughs> so part of the story was he had to find a wife along the way. So we had footage of him in, you know, different cities, uh, you know, Copenhagen for love, and kind Bruges. Of, yeah. yeah, exactly. Looking for love. So uh, it was... Which you know, all ties into the brand as exactly. well. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. So oh, we had a lot of fun with it. And um, now again, this was back in... 2010, 2011. So this is pre-Instagram, pre-Facebook yeah, Live. YouTube or something. Yeah. 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 Pre, uh, phone, phone's good enough to take videos. Phones didn't, we didn't have any yeah. of that video stuff at the, yeah. the time. We had an actual camcorder. So, and that was the time when the Cork Swansea Ferry was running. 
So yeah. we went from Cork on the ferry to it Swansea. Took about ten hours to get across. Yeah, yeah. and uh, all across the UK through the 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 tunnel into France, up through Belgium and Germany, and all the way up uh, Copenhagen, Denmark, uh, Sweden, and um, Finland. And we got sponsorship for it. Um, I convinced the campervan company to give us a campervan for two weeks. Uh, Carlton Hotel Group at the time, they were the biggest hotel group in Ireland. They gave us money and we filmed videos every day on the road. And then my brother, who worked with me at the time, would sit in the back of the campervan editing the videos. Um, and we would stop at an internet cafe once a day and he would upload the four to five minute video to YouTube it wasn't exactly real time. It was a day behind, yeah. right? But people at home were following our journey. And then we was checking in with Rick O'Shea on 2FM at the start of the trip while we were on the road. And then when we got to Finland, the PR we got out of it was phenomenal. The content, obviously, brilliant. Yeah. Um, and we then, as a, a, the following year, we actually won the prize at the, the Irish, Irish Social Media Awards. We won an award up in Dublin for um, Best Online PR. And we beat Meteor, Pizza Hut, like big brands Brilliant. with big budgets. And it was just me and a couple of my friends, my mm. brother, in a camper van for two weeks in the summer. I mean, we had an amazing time. Like we had such a laugh doing it ourselves. And what a ridiculous, bonkers experience. And it just worked out so brilliantly for the business as well to get all that exposure and PR. And I suppose it gave people a chance to see a bit of my personality as well. You know, that, yeah, yeah it's my business is, is serious, but also... I'm just a person and I like having a laugh and the amount of people that would have talked to me about that, even my clients, you know, they just got to know me better and we started having having the banter and building up those friendships, which now I'd call a lot of my clients friends. Um, but that kind of built up over those over those years. So it was, it was a great time. Uh, mm. You know, when I was expanding the business into the UK, there was less kind of time for stunts like that. You know, we were still a very small team. And then... I became a mom, you know, going, you know, my pregnancy and my babies were born. I have twins. They were born very prematurely. So, yeah. you know, that was all of those things are, you know, you, you start to have a different lens on, on your business. But I have some brilliant, you know, memories of that, of those early years and all of the kind of PR and the stunts that we did was, was just great fun. What's the future for the business? Would you go beyond UK? Yeah, I've, I've, I mean, if there's anybody in the Leo or Enterprise Ireland listening to this podcast, they'll be probably chuckling away saying, God, she's been talking about that now for a long time. Um, yeah, I've always thought that this business has absolutely global appeal. Yeah. Um, and this was what I learned from taking weddingdates.ie and doing weddingdates.co.uk was it's extremely difficult to grow a consumer brand in another comp in another country and start from scratch. So mm. you know, our, in our in Ireland, we're looking for Irish couples getting married in Irish venues, right? And in the UK, it's couples in the UK getting married in UK venues. You know, it's a totally different audience. Sometimes they overlap a little bit, but like it's predominant. You know, you're starting again, um, from to build that audience, build that traffic. So what's really exciting for me now is because we have the SaaS business, the software that, of course, software knows no borders yeah, yeah. right so anywhere exactly and so it's a much different beast now and much more um exciting and attractive to me to scale it globally um you know the the learning from the UK you know it's I'm not going to say it's not that hard to rank on page one of Google of course it's extremely hard but like you know with good SEO and you know a bit of support from Google ads like you can rank well on Google yeah, in Ireland yeah. it's a whole nother ball game so in the UK competition yeah, yeah. It's way, way more competitive. So, um, you know, imagine trying to do that in the US. I mean, you'd need a marketing budget of millions, yeah. like, you know, just for Google, mm. Google ads, you know. So, you know, it, it's given me a different focus now, um, you know, to, to scale the software brand um, and, and wedding dates can stay in Ireland and the UK and, and be, uh, um, you know, have that that longevity. Um, but the, the, the global growth would be on the software side. On the software side. Mm -hmm. We finish up the podcast every week with three questions. The first one is, you know, you've been on a 15-year journey yourself. What tip would you give another business to build their brand? Getting out and speaking to your customers consistently is probably the biggest tip I would give. Mm -hmm. Whoever your customers are, don't get complacent. Their, their moods, their buying decisions, their trends, their what influences them will change. So, you know, you can't ever know your customer enough. And I think 
sitting down and talking to them and trying to get face to face if possible or online however you can talk to your customers whether that's B2B or B2C I think talking to your customers you you can just never as I say you can never do it enough and that would be my biggest tip and don't just do it in the market research phase of your business when you're doing your business plan you know do it consistently yeah exactly and build that relationship with them Mm -hmm. and if I was to look at individuals what tip would you give an individual I'm thinking maybe there could be a 25 year old out there listening to this that's thinking about going on that entrepreneurial journey like you did, what what tip would you give them? I think just back yourself. You know, I think that was a a huge thing for me. And I I actually think it's um, a bit easier to start a business when you're younger. You know, people used to say to me, oh, you're you're so, you're great starting a business when you're young. I actually think it's, it's easier because you probably don't have the same financial responsibilities in terms of mortgage or kids or anything that yeah, older people yeah. might have, right? So that's the first thing. And then the other thing is you probably, you know, when you're younger, I think you just have less fear of failure or, yeah. you know, you, you maybe, I, I don't know, I, I just think maybe that kind of ignorance slash arrogance, you know, I think that really stood to me so much when I was, in, when I was 25 starting. It, like ignorance is bliss. I was like, la, 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 you know, going along just really, I really believe the world is my oyster, you know. And um, so I just really, for people that are thinking about it, I would just say, you know, really back yourself. But actually, when you strip it back and stay true to your core, um, I think that's probably the most powerful thing. And the last question we have is in association with our sponsor, the show Skillsbase. We're looking to find out what skill is essential in your industry. So I'm thinking in in this industry where you're dealing with hospitality, uh, you're dealing with so many different hotels, venues and stuff. What, what, what skill is essential? I always say to people when, you know, when I'm hiring new people or I'm interviewing, you know, skills can be taught, skills can be learned, but attitude is everything. Okay, you know, yeah. I think attitude is, is even more important than skills. Yeah. If you go in with a growth mindset, you know, open to learning, open to trying new things, open to failing. Yeah. Um, you know, I think you can pick up skills along the way. Um, but one of the core skills that I would say that everybody in any business can always look to hone and improve would be communication and probably in particular listening. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's something that as especially as I've gotten older, you know, that phrase, you know, we have two ears and one mouth, you yeah. know. Um <laughs> I've I've definitely I suppose learned to hone my listening skills and still I have a long way to go you mm. know um, of you know really listening to what somebody's saying particularly you know a customer or whatever um, and I think it can't be underestimated So it's something you have to train yourself mm-hmm. all the time Yeah And I'm sure there's a lot of listening left over the next couple of years as you develop that SaaS platform it's really exciting because it's like a new phase of your mm-hmm. business Absolutely Kira, it's been fantastic to hear your story and best of luck going forward. And once again, congratulations on 15 years. Thank you so much. That wraps up this week's podcast. Thanks again to our sponsor, Skillsbase app, which is a solutions provider for companies looking for mobile-first engagement and blended learning tools. To find out more information on what they can do, visit skillsbase.ie. Don't forget to like and subscribe to the show and get in contact with us on all social platforms. I will be back again next week with a brand new episode.